If you remember what we talked about on Sunday, we talked about the prodigal sons. This prodigal son. We talked about the younger brother being um, uh, discontent, uh, his status and position with the family. Uh, he went on to riotous living. Uh, prodigal, we began to understand, means that it was a complete waste of money. It was spending with reckless abandon. It was like what happens in Vegas, stays in Vegas. You know, you, you go into debt. Uh, a problem. And we've, we found that it was basically a, a, a series of being discontent. And then we saw and, and took into reference the older brother who said to his dad, I stayed here, I did everything you've asked me to do, uh, you never gave me a party. What's interesting is he never asks for the party, but his dad certainly wouldn't deny him the party. He doesn't ask for the fatted calf as the young son did not ask for the fatted calf. The father proclaimed, let's kill the fatted calf, the prize calf, and we can have a celebration for my son has come home. He was once lost, now he's found. Then we look at the older brother who says, you never even gave me a goat. So there's, there's some references there that's kind of interesting that he doesn't say, why didn't I get the fatted calf? And again, the Pharisees who he was talking to at the time, they would know all of these little allegories. They would know all these little innuendos. It was basically Jesus putting screws to these guys saying, okay, look, at you, if you can figure this stuff out, you're going to understand that you're no better off than, <laughs> excuse me, the sinners and publicans and people who you would look down upon and consider the dregs of society, that they're clamoring to me and they're trying to find something. So pretty interesting that. One thing that I overlooked, and I was just doing a quick little review study was, what's interesting is the older son not only is mad at his brother, but he's mad at his father. And why is he mad at his father? Because the self-righteousness that he exhibits is, is going to fall under one of these five categories of what happens when you practice self-righteousness. And then what I want to do is I want to go over just the basic idea, something from Philippians that we've been discussing in our Sunday school class, about the idea of contentment. Both of these young fellows were absolutely discontent. And I would, I would venture to say, I have no biblical backing for it, so please, if you know better than me, please let me know. Please illuminate my mind to the, to the real facts. I believe the older boy was actually more discontent than the younger one was. Because here he had been keeping the rules. He, he says he's been doing everything. I've never left you. I've never done all the, these things that my, my brother has done. But yet his father doesn't chastise him either. He doesn't run him into the ground. So as the riotous younger brother comes home, it's not like the father saying to him again, give me the Excel spreadsheet. Let me see your receipts for your partying. You know, who were you with? What were you doing? How long were you there? What did you do? He doesn't say any of those things. And he doesn't say to the older brother anything with chastisement in his voice at all. He, he says, look, if, if you would have asked, I would have given you all these things. He welcomes the self-righteous with open arms, as much as he welcomes the prodigal, riotous, living boy, uh, his younger son. So when Pastor Clark talks about the things about, you know, being too churchy or, you know, the self-righteous, Jesus is there to accept those people with open arms. And that's another thing that the parable teaches us, is that even the self-righteous are welcomed with open arms. Let's, let's pray and then we'll begin to dis discuss these things. Heavenly Father, we ask you to do just a few things with us tonight. We ask you to use this time to glorify your name. Remove any type of humanity from me. Let me be a mouthpiece for the word of the Lord. Teach us to learn from our past tonight, at least contemplate. Prepare our hearts and minds for the future. And uh, cause us to love uh, our life in Christ that we have every moment. Let's not look beyond what we have exactly right now because that's all we have. We ask these things and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.
Okay, so the older brother is self-righteous, he's legalist, he's, he's discontented. There are some certain problems that go along with self-righteousness uh, and legalism. Number one is this, a self-righteous hypocrite judges the sins of others while overlooking his own. And that's pretty important. Remember, the older brother looks and says, hey, he's, he's hanging out with a bunch of prostitutes. He doesn't know that, he assumes that. And I, I always find that to be amazing because think about how many times you have said to somebody, yeah, I was over here doing this. They're like, you weren't doing that. I know exactly what you were doing. And they assume something that is not true at all. Now, you may have a track record for doing those things. And I understand that. And we all have track records. But the fact of the matter is you weren't doing it that time. And for someone to assume you're doing it, you automatically kind of get a little chip on your shoulder, that thing. You don't know what I was doing. You don't know nothing about me. And, and then all of a sudden, now we have no longer dialogue. Now we have conflict. We no longer have conversation. Number two, the self-righteous and the legalists have a tendency to judge others based on selective standards, not all on God's word. And so what they'll do is they'll pick and choose which ones will be the best to hold you to, and what standards to hold you to, without using God's word to do that. Now, there's nothing wrong with doing that if the standards that they're using are applicable to themselves, they're applicable to the general public, and they do indeed glorify God and they can go along with what biblical standards are. But very rarely will people pick those things out because that's, those, are too, those are things that are too well thought out. And what happens is to start contemplating and beginning to think about those things, which means you have to put your brain in, in gear and at least be objective enough to say, well, you know what, I'm not meeting those same standards. They will not do that at all. Number three, they're more concerned about external conformity than they are in, in concerned about their inner godliness. What do I look like to the outside world? What, what is it that I'm positing so someone would say, oh, he's such a great guy. I mean, look at all these things that he does. And it's like the guy who's at the temple who says, you know, I've given 10%. I've given all these things. Look at me. Look at me. And the other one there said, you know what? Be merciful to me, God. You know, I'm a sinner. There's a difference between the inner godliness that one seeks and the external picture that you want everybody else to see. What does it look like to the outside world? That may not be exactly what is going on. Uh, I have the luxury of taking care of people. I have the luxury of taking care of patients. Uh, the best part about my job is I take care of people. The worst part about my job is I take care of people. And so what ends up happening is you get, a, you, you get to understand that there is a read on people. And there is a whole lot to be said for when someone comes in and they present themselves one way and then you begin to talk to them and the makeup comes off, the mask comes off, all the charade comes off and you realize, you know what, they're just as jacked up as everybody else I know. But the outside facade was that, man, they have everything put together. Uh, I don't think I've ever met anybody in the 35 years of taking care of patients that quote unquote have it all together. None of us do. I don't. I know that for a fact. That's why sometimes I don't even look in the mirror. I don't want to see that reflection at times because I know what's going on in here. I know what desperation occurs in here. I know what venomous things are occurring in here. And so we have to understand that everybody is walking a path. Everybody has some demons on the inside. Everybody has some hard times and carrying some load on their shoulders or on their heart that we don't need to spend time judging them. We need to spend time listening. We need to spend time loving. We need to spend time edifying and building each other up in the Lord. Every one of us in here has some crap we're going through. Every one of us. It doesn't make a difference if it's big, if it's small. If I think it's big to, 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 to know what my problems are, I, don't, I can't judge your problems. They're big to you. They may be small to me, but I'm not walking in your shoes. 
In the book, The Kill a Mockingbird, uh, she says, you never really know someone until you walk a mile in their shoes. Because what they project on the outside may not be anything that's happening on the inside. And a lot of stuff that we project is so that we protect ourselves, like, you know, like a, the turtle wax, right? It's a hard shell finish. We put that stuff on so that nobody can see the chinks in our armor. They just keep seeing that beautiful, new, shiny car. When reality is the engine's falling apart, I'm getting lousy gas mileage, the radio doesn't work, and the windows don't roll down. But the car looks good on the outside. And that's exactly us putting on that hard shell finish. Uh, number four, we're not interested in helping others. And that's a problem in and of itself. We don't want to help others grow in godliness, but only in gaining a following, right? Look at me. I'm doing all these great things. Come on, be on my, be on my team, be on my bench. And the reality is that, that's all short-lived. That, that really is. And number five, we justify ourselves by comparing ourselves with others or by blaming others for our sins. And there's an old saying that says this, look, don't judge me just because my sins are different than yours. And we have a tendency very, very often to give the finger to point here out at somebody, but we neglect the three fingers that are pointing back at us. We have a tendency to dislike what we see in other people's and what we know is happening to ourselves and the same personality traits that we have in and of ourselves. That's just being alive. That's just being a person. And so we have to learn that there is a biblical sense to finding contentment. And when we say contentment, what I'm talking about means that the only way that we can find true contentment is in the service of others. And that means that we are found in Christ. And until we are found in Christ, a lot of our motives are going to be based on selfishness and what's in it for me, the bigger, better deal, all that kind of stuff in comparison. That's not true service of others. That's you're helping somebody to make yourself look good. And I'm not sure that that's always the right idea. Can you look good helping someone? Sure. Does God judge the externals? No, he says, I'm looking at your heart. I want to know what's in your heart all the time. So he's looking at our heart issues. What does the scripture tell us about our heart? It is what? It is desperately wicked until it goes through a change when we understand that the shed blood of Christ has been for us and we can now find ourselves under the umbrella of exactly what Christ has done for us, we now are allowed to do for other people. So each of the boys... Uh, in the parable, our malcontents, as are all of us. Because of our discontentment, we seek out what gives us pleasure. We don't like the discontentment. The, dis the discontentment is uneasy. It doesn't feel good to us. So what is our natural proclivity? It's to do something that makes us feel good. We are after that dopamine hit. We're after the serotonin. We're after the norepinephrine up here. We want to feel good. And we want to feel good not only physically, but we want to feel good mentally and we want to feel good emotionally. And what, are, what is one of those things that help us do that? Is sin. Now you think to yourself, well, what, what do you mean by that? Think about how many times you have been upset or discontented in some way. And you end up doing things that are absolutely unbelievable. You would look and say, wow, I, I, I can't believe I just did that. I can't believe I just thought that. I can't believe I just wished that on that person. I can't believe that I am moving in that direction. See, the problem with self-absorption is that it's antithetical to Jesus' teaching to love our neighbor as ourselves. But that's where it becomes hard because we're too busy loving ourselves all the time to love another person. Serving others is what we are free to do as Christians. The young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to inherit the kingdom of God? What does he say? Love the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and 
Go serve your neighbor. Go take care of your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so there's always the other-centeredness in the gospel message. Christ did not need to come for himself. He needed to come for the sinners that we are, that need to be saved, that need to be removed from the wrath of God. He was other-centered all the time. He even says in the garden, if this cup can pass from me, let it pass from me. He knew what was heading his way. But he says, not my will, not my self-centeredness, but your will, another, an other-centeredness of his Father who is in heaven. And that's a big, huge difference between being self-centered and being other-centered. In Philippians 2, 3 through 11, the only person enslaved to Christ is the free person to love and serve another person. Can there be a great deal of satisfaction from helping someone else out? Sure. There, there's nothing selfish about having a satisfaction of knowing you're helping somebody out. I mean, that, that's good. That's what we should have. When the ends of helping somebody out and the means of self, helping somebody out is only for your own gain, you're no longer in the right game. You've stepped over into the selfishness of what's in it for me. How am I looking to, to, to the outside world? Do I always look good to somebody else? Is this, is this, am I heading in the right direction? Because, gosh, Kyle's going to look at me and say, yeah, man, he, what a great guy. He's heading in the right direction. That's the wrong attitude to have. I want to help because it's the right thing to do to have help. As Tullian Tavijan says, look, God doesn't need your help, but your neighbor does. Go help him. And sometimes that's hard. That means you're going to get punched in the face. You're going to get kicked in the you-know-what. It's okay. Those are, those are all baked in the cake when you're helping somebody else. But you know what? Are you robbing somebody of, of some of their blessing by letting them help you? How many people do you know that are very willing to step out, I mean, to the point of discomfort, to the point of, man, they're, they're putting themselves on the line to help other people, but they are the last people to ever ask for help. I believe those people are robbing another of the blessing that somebody else can help them with something. They're usually needing help in some area all the time. And they need to have that wall broken down that says, hey, look it, I need some help too. If you need help, what do you do? You ask. It's really hard. Man, I need help. I think I'm going off the deep end here. Hey, man, I see that train coming on the tracks and I'm, I'm running to the light. I put my ear on it, man, it's right there. Help, 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 help me. Yeah, ask for help. Be a blessing to somebody else by letting them help you, letting them love you unconditionally as you're so willing to do for other people. Jealousy, anger, self-absorption, they're all symptoms of the greater discontentment with where you are in reference to Christ. One of our problems that we have is we know so many people that are unhappy because they're waiting for a time when everything is perfect. They are waiting for a day when they wake up and everything clicks, when nothing is going wrong, the day will never come. There will always be suffering. There will always be discontent. There will always be something that goes wrong. That's baked in the cake called life. I can't ever recall a day that was absolutely perfect in every way, shape, and form in my 57 years. It just hasn't happened. Are there minor glitches? Sure. Are there major glitches? Oh, there's there was two. For sure. For sure. But baked in the cake is it's going to go wrong. Things are going to spiral in my day today. When you deal with people, people are messy. I'm messy. I'm a hot mess most of the time. 
All I do is cover it up so you guys don't know where the hot mess is coming from. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But the fact of the matter is, nothing goes right all the time. The question is, are you prepared in your mind and in your body and in your soul to accept that nothing is perfect? Are you perfect? Then why would you expect your neighbor to be perfect? Does he have a lousy situation? Sure, he has a lousy situation. Just so do you. Don't judge him because his situation is any better or any worse than you. Now you're in the business of judging, and that's not your job. Your job is to love and to serve, not to judge. God has enough on his plate to do that. Let him do the judging. Think of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians when he prays three times for that thorn to be removed. And God answers what? My grace is sufficient. Was he in a season of discontent? Yeah. There's Nobody knows, by the way, what he was discontent about. He never says that he had a thorn in his side. He never said that he had a problem with his vision. We can assume several things. The problem is he had something that was causing him some disconcerning, some uh, discontentment. Something was there, and he prayed. And he says in that prayer that God's strength is magnified through our weaknesses. Is discontentment a weakness? I don't know. I mean, doesn't everybody have seasons of discontent? I mean, everybody has a season of discontent. Is anger a sin? No, it's not a sin unless you make it sinful to be anger. We have emotions that God put in us. Every one of our emotions is God, is God put in us. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. We have fear. We have depression. We have anxiety. There are times that we need all of those things. But when they become overwhelming and it drives us to self-absorption, it drives us to always looking in or navel-gazing on ourselves, now we start the problem. And we get on that hamster wheel and never get off because we're always looking internal for the answers and the internal is lousy. We've got to step off the wheel and look outside and as Christians, we look to Christ and what's been accomplished at the cross. As non-Christians, what can we do? We can look at Christ and look at the cross and see what the Christians are doing and saying, hey, you know what? You're a Christian. Your life is a mess too. Yeah, absolutely. Whose life isn't a mess? And if, if your walk is to become a Christian and think that your life will never be messy, you're walking in the wrong direction. As a matter of fact, it is my contention that becoming a Christian, your life gets even more messy because you're constantly aware of the things that you're doing and you're thinking. You're like, oh my gosh, how can I be thinking that? You've got to be kidding me. I'm a Christian. Yeah, we all think the same things. That's why we, all, we, can, we can all laugh and we can all laugh with a familiarity that that's exactly the path that we're on. So we're going to jump into the text right now. And I'm just going to read something from Philippians 4.6. Be anxious for nothing. Raise your hand if you've ever been anxious. There we go. Okay, I'm going to give you some advice from the, right from the good book. Be anxious for nothing. The word anxious comes from a Greek word that we would use to be worrisome. And so when you look at the word anxious, its root meaning comes from the Greek word worry. Now, how many of you would say, your mind would say, oh, you're such a worrier. Okay, well, you know, when we worry, when we're anxious, that is a great way to know you're walking away from God as opposed to walking towards him or with him. Because you're trusting more in your worrisomeness, and you're trusting more in your anxiety, you're trusting more in your depression, you're trusting more in your, you're trusting more in your, you're trusting more in your, than what God has to say to you and what the Spirit of God can do to your heart. When I'm anxious, what I do personally is I ask myself this question, is this a life or death situation? 99.9999999 times the answer is always what? No. 
I have a little something on my phone that says, you're doing pretty well. You have survived 100% of every bad day you've ever come in contact with. And that's a pretty good track record. Which means I don't have much to be anxious over. If I'm not going to jail, if the government doesn't knock on my door, if there's not a heavy set fellow wearing a fluorescent orange uh, coat with a bulldozer on my front lawn, I'm having a good day. I'm having a good day. Very little to be anxious over. But yet we find ourselves what? Anxious all the time. Anxiousness, worry, depression, anxiety, those are seasons of discontent. Those are seasons of discontent. Was the young boy riotous? Was he, did he have ADD? Was he anxious? Well, I, I don't know. We can insert those things. We can assume those things. I don't think they're, they're going to give us anywhere. But think about that. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, 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 by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Interesting, he uses the term hearts and minds. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. He's constantly referencing the Apostle Paul, things that happen here, the mind. Think about the undomesticated beast that is, in your, that is in your head called your mind. Your imagination can get you to places that are phenomenal. You can go from zero to stupid in no time flat by just letting this thing run wild. Right? Be anxious for nothing. Yeah, but what, 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 if I, what, if I, what if I fumble up there and I, I say the wrong words? Okay, so I fumble up there and say the wrong words. I'm not going to die if I do that. It's going to be okay. How many of you do have a fear of public speaking? Like you would, the last thing you would want to do is come up here and do any of this. Okay, that's anxiety. That, that, that would be worrisomeness. And my question is this: Nobody's up here going to. I hope nobody's going to take a shot at me. But I mean, you know, statistically, nobody's going to take a shot at me. So when we start breaking these things down, we find that what this, the Greek Stoic philosopher Seneca said: We have a tendency to suffer more in our imaginations than we do in reality. And think about how many times that undomesticated beast called your imagination your mind runs wild and puts you into places you have no business visiting. Remember the kid's story where the wild things are? The fun little story for the kids? It's all based on his imagination running crazy. And where the wild things are. That's, that's where the wild things are is right in here. So that's 4, 6, 13. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true... Whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate upon these things. So now I'm anxious, I'm depressed, I'm filled with anxiety. My question is, am I focusing on things that are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, virtue, or praiseworthy? Or am I meditating on where my imagination is running to drive me further into my season of discontent? It's almost impossible. As a matter of fact, it is impossible for your mind to occupy two thoughts at any given time. It's usually one thought at a time. Now, it can be very rapidly in succession, but we don't ever have two thoughts at the same time. So how can we be anxious and think on things that are true? We can't. But what do we do? We run to the things that cause us the anxiety. Because of our season of discontent. Some of us love our seasons of discontent because we're so happy and familiar and comfortable with our seasons of discontent that we have to move away from that. 
But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, and now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Now that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Now I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. That's the contentment, is that he's learned the highs, he's learned the lows, he's learned the in-betweens, and realizes that now, because of those things, he can be content. Have you ever been hungry? Absolutely. And when you're hungry, doesn't that first piece of bread or that first meal afterwards make a whole bit of difference? Of course it does. Of course it does. You ever been tired? Yeah, right? That first little bit of sleep, how luxurious is that? And the fact of the matter is, when you have a reference to the highs and to the lows, then your seasons of contentment are much easier because what you realize is, I've eaten too much. That's not a good feeling either. And I've been starving. Man, that's not a good feeling either. I've slept in rocky beds. Not a good feeling. I've slept in beds that are too comfortable that I slept my back hurting in the morning. Not good either. But I have a reference. And because of the situation of being high and being low, I know that I can now accomplish all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. I cannot accomplish all things through Christ, period. I can accomplish all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. That's where the strength is coming from. That's where my joy in the season of discontent can now come from. Contentment means... It's not all about me. If you have contemplated as, as, if you contemplated that as you breathe right now, there's another person taking their last breath. Stop complaining and learn to live the life with what you have and where you are. Whatever is befalling you and causing you to curse, to suffer with the curse of discontentment, that shall pass. It may be a kidney stone that's shaped like barbed wire, but it's going to pass. As my friend Jimmy the Beast tells me all the time, it will be different in 24 hours. Could be worse. And it could be a whole lot better, but it's going to be different in 24 hours. Give yourself a little time for that season of discontentment to maybe wind its way down. Self-absorption is venomous. The only lasting antidote is the gospel of Christ and him crucified. Again, I quote Tellian Tavidian a lot, but he is right on. Quote, all the good stuff that is already ours in Christ settles at the bottom when we focus on ourselves more than Jesus. After all, Peter began to sink when he took his eyes off Jesus and focused on his own performance. Theologian John Owen said, quote, Holiness is nothing but the implanting, writing, and living out the gospel in our souls. What is the gospel? Not my work for Jesus, but Jesus' work for me. In other words, holiness happens not by looking at ourselves, but looking at Jesus. Therefore, it takes the loving actions of our Christian brothers and sisters to remind us every day of the gospel that everything we need and look for in the things smaller than Jesus is already ours in Christ. When this happens, the good stuff rises to the top. The Puritans used to say that far too many Christians live beneath their level of privilege. Therefore, I need to be told by those around me that every time I sin, I'm momentarily suffering from an identity crisis, forgetting who I actually belong to, what I actually want as my... Um, remade core and all that is already mine in Christ. The only way to deal with remaining sin long term is to develop a distaste for it in light of the glorious riches that we already possess in Jesus. I need my real friends to remind me of this every day. Please tell me again and again that God doesn't love me more when I obey or less when I disobey. 
knowing this actually enlarges my heart for God and therefore shrinks my hunger for sin. So don't let me forget it. My life depends on it. We're to lift one another up in prayer. We're to edify one another. We're to be merciful to one another, especially as Christians. Let the world look at us and say, what is different about them? How, how, can, they, how can they love so freely? Because we are loved so freely. Amen. Think of what we, how we would present to a thrice holy God who knows no sin, who can't even look upon sin. So much so he cannot look upon sin that Jesus yells from the cross, cries from the cross, admonishes his own father from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God cannot stand to look at sin. And when he looks at sin and he sees Christ, he sees the imputation of Christ's righteousness and what Christ accomplished at Calvary in that sacrifice that has been imputed to us. He doesn't see the negativity that we see when we, look, when we look at one another. He doesn't see big. He doesn't see small. He doesn't see long hair, short hair. He doesn't see color of skin. He looks at a heart that's been circumcised by the shed blood of Christ that is brand new. It's now a heart of flesh. It's not a heart of stone. It's not a heart of coal. It's not a heart of sinful desires. Do we still maintain the level of sinful desire once we've been saved? Probably less. But is it there? Absolutely. Are we new creations created in Christ Jesus unto good works? Absolutely. Do we be bummed out at our sins? I was going to use an expletive there. Are we upset with our sins? Of course. See, the, 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 here, here's one of the problems. I remember Pastor Clark saying to me when he was teaching me the gospel. He used to say, the difference between someone saved and unsaved at bedtime is the saved person lays awake and thinks, how could I think and do and act those things? The unsaved person says this, ah, good night. And there's absolutely no thought process or no rumination of things that have gone on in your mind and in your day at all. And that's a problem. That's why we must take inventory and look and say, hey, man, I had a pretty good day. Hey, man, you know what? I wasn't as nice to Sherry as I thought I could have been. Maybe I could have held the door before or let her go before me. Those are the things when we're taking inventory of our lives. So we have something to say, hey, you know what? I'm getting a little bit better. Does God care if you're getting a little bit better? I'm sure he does. Is he going to kick you out of heaven or keep you in? That's not on you. That's on what Christ has accomplished at the cross. You, do you really think that God needs your help? Uh, I don't think so. Because if God needs our help, then he's no God at all. What happened to his omnipotency? He's supposed to be all-powerful if he needs what he's made to aid him. In the book of Romans, it says, Does not, the, the, the lump of clay doesn't say to the potter, Why did you make me this way? The potter has dominion and power over the clay to make what he wants. And that's what Jesus and that's what God has done for us. So here's my questions, a couple of questions for you. Are you discontented with your life? Why? Do you wish you were taller or smaller? Why? Do you wish you had a better job or a job? Why? Do you wish you never took the first hit, shot, puff, pill, injection? Why? I wish I had a better family. Why? I wish this year would go by a little bit faster. Why? I wish I made more money. I wish I wasn't so lonely. I wish we didn't have silly rules on dating. I wish we weren't having hot dogs again. I wish we were out of here. Why? All of those are microcosms and micro seasons of discontent. Think about those things, how they thread through our every warp and woof of thinking and our daily thinking and our daily interactions that we have just with our mind.
So we say, well, you know what, I, I'm, I'm going to be, I am content. I, I can answer those questions, and I find that I, I didn't answer positively or negatively to each one of those. I, I feel like I'm a content person. Okay, here's some other diagnostics. Can you be content when you relapse? Was there a, was there a season of discontent before you relapsed? Will there be a season of content knowing that you got to walk the walk of shame and say, oh, relapse? See, but nobody cares. You care. You inflate it. You make it bigger than it always has to be. Hey, man, look at me. I relapsed for the 28th time. Okay, well, we don't particularly care. We care that you relapse, but come on, let's get back on the, uh, on the right path and let's get this problem solved another time. Can you be content when you lose a job? Can you be content when your boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up with you, your husband or wife walk away from you? See, those are tough seasons now. So let's get down to where, where, where the rubber meets the road here. Can you be content in the miscarriage or the loss of a child? A good friend of mine just lost his second kid. Can't imagine that. Can, oh my God. Can you find contentment when your mom or dad or brother or sister gets diagnosed with a terminal condition? Can you find contentment when your best friend disses you? Can you find contentment when you're broke? You would find so much discontentment, everyone in this room would find more discontentment by winning the lottery than they would by losing all their money. Because what would we do in this room if we won the lottery? I'm out! I can afford it now! Right? Hey, hey, hey. Let, me, let me tell you something. You know, why, you know why people go broke when they win the lottery? Because they couldn't handle the $10,000 they had in their bank account before they won the lottery. What makes you think they're going to handle the $10 million in their bank account? Now they can afford to be exactly who they are. And you know what? If Kyle doesn't like who I am, I can buy another Kyle. <laughs> think about it. Think about people who win the lottery. Their lives go down the what? Yeah, the pooper. It's terrible. It's terrible. Why? No contentment. Can you be content when church service goes too long? Just kidding. Can you be content when you realize that you actually hate the struggle that you're in the middle of? Can you be content when your hair turns gray, your belly sags, and you got man boobs? Can you be content when your kids are a jerk? Can you be content when your kids think you're a jerk? Can you be content when you are a jerk? Those are a little bit tired. Can you be content when your friend overdoses and dies? Can you be content that you can pay your car off and then someone hits it that same day? And can you be content that Christ came to earth to do for us what we could never do for ourselves and that we can truly rest and have peace with God by having a relationship with Christ? That's contentment. Grace is incredible when we compare it to sin because sin takes us farther than we want to go it keeps us longer than we want to stay and it costs us more than we're willing to pay but grace grace meets us where we're at but never leaves us where we are grace is always sufficient when you understand it comes from Christ and what he accomplished at the cross can you be content and be thankful are happy people thankful or are thankful people happy? Thankful people are happy because there's always something to be thankful for. Grace means that every stupid, iniquitous thing you've done now serves a purpose. So quit beating yourself up. 
Quit lashing out at yourself and self-flagellating over the sins that you've committed and the thoughts that you have. They're now serving a purpose to keep you at the cross and keep Christ and what he's accomplished on your behalf in front of you 24-7, 365, only for the rest of your life. That's contentment, is knowing exactly that. As we've prayed before, nothing is perfect, life is messy, relationships are complex, outcomes are uncertain, and people are irrational. Are we really haughty enough to think that we're not in that same part of that? I am far from perfect. I'm a hot mess. I constantly bring complexity to my relationships. I exude uncertainty. And by golly, my self-absorption and discontentment is totally irrational. Discontentment is venomous. And the only antidote towards it is always going to be found in Christ. There's a very simple saying in Latin... And some of you may know who I'm talking about. If you've studied any philosophy, there's a guy by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche. who's a German philosopher. He talked about something called amore fate. And amore fate is a Latin term that basically means love of my fate or love of my life. And he goes on to say here that it's used to describe an attitude in which one sees everything that happens in one life, including suffering and loss, as good or at very least necessary. Nietzsche's love of fate naturally leads him to confront the reality of suffering in a radical way. When we use the word suffering, think of the term of, of discontent. Think of the term of anger. Think of the term of anxiety. Think of any term you want to put in there as far as suffering, which means you are in a season of discontent in some way, shape, or form. For to love that which is necessary demands not only that we love the bad along with the good, but that we view the two as inextricably linked. Only great pain, says Nietzsche, is the ultimate liberator of the spirit. I doubt that such pain makes us better, but I know that it makes us more profound because we're forced to confront ourselves. He says here that the challenge for all modern men is to create and live by affirming values, to find meaning in a world that has become void of any such thing. In the present age, we often feel like we're straying as though an infinite nothing. Nietzsche's exhortation to all is to fight against this empty drift, to become who you are, to love the suffering and challenge as much as you love ease and comfort. He says here that the most spiritual men, listen to this, this is highly profound, highly profound. The most spiritual men, as the strongest, find their happiness where others would find their destruction. In the labyrinth, in hardness against themselves and in others. Their joy is self-conquest. It becomes them in their nature and their need and their instinct. Difficult tasks are a privilege to them. To play with the burdens that crush others is their recreation. That is heavy, heavy thought processes in understanding seasons of discontent. What are you so discontent about? You're discontent because you're running away from Christ and Him crucified, not to Him and Him crucified. Think of where you can lay every sin, where you can lay every burden down is at the foot of that cross and know that your sins have been forgiven. You are free to take second place. You are free to lose. You are free to be who you are because who you are individually makes you beautiful because God made you that way. If all of us were the same, it would be boring. I want to have a conversation with Kyle because Kyle doesn't think like me. If I had a conversation with only people who think like me, I'd have no conversation. I would just keep the conversation here. 
Where is your season of discontent? What is the root cause of your season of discontent? Self-conquest doesn't mean looking in here. Self-conquest means looking unto Jesus. That's conquest. Because every time I lose, I'm free to lose because Jesus won everything for me. I can be small because Jesus is big. I can look and love Sherry because I've been loved unconditionally and I can love someone else unconditionally. I don't want to love Kyle because Kyle can do something for me. I want to love Kyle because I'm called to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. Where's your season of discontent? Self-absorption? Self-conquest means I'm going outside of myself to where all things have been solved and that's at Calvary. Forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. How many of you can look, look in the mirror and say, he's talking to me when he says that. I still don't know what I'm doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. The seasons of discontent, is it a season or, it is, a, or is it a reason? Are you looking beyond your own selfishness and saying, what's in this? Yeah, what's in it for me? But what's in it for me to be bigger, better, stronger in my walk with Christ? And then I trip and I fall and I fail and I bring Sherry down with me and I kick Kyle on the way down. It's okay. I'm going to get back up. I'm going to help Sherry up. I'm going to go ahead and, and, and nurse Kyle back to good health and I'm going to keep on walking. And then you know what I'm going to do when I get to row two? I'm going to fall down again, but I'm going to get up. Because, as Nietzsche says right here, to play with burdens that crush others becomes my recreation. Which means I'm free to love, I'm free to obey, I'm free to do what Christ and God commands of me because it's already been done for me. I can't lose. And when you know you can't lose, you're a dangerous character. To find contentment, you must be found in Christ. Then your hearts can sing with profound joy that I have breath in my lungs there are people in my life who believe in me. I have a thrice holy God who is working out my salvation each day. That grace and mercy to do what I'm called to do is mine. And that the journey, be it good, bad, high or low, has brought me here to where exactly I am. Because all we have is right now. What happened yesterday is long gone. We don't know if anything is going to be around tomorrow. This could all be eliminated overnight. But we have exactly right now. Can you be content in the moment? Can you find contentment outside of yourself? As Christians, can we find 100% of our contentment in what Christ has accomplished for us? I beg of you and I pray for you. Please let that be your answer is yes, I can. I can rest in Christ.